You may be seated. What is it that you dream? Do you dream of worldly honors? Do you dream of temporal rewards? If so, then there's nothing more shocking than what we find in our gospel reading this morning. It may be this summed up with those words of Christ, get behind me, Satan. You see, there's no principle more central and more practical to the Christian life than the principle of the cross. If we are to be the church of Jesus Christ, if we are to be the church of great reward, then we must be the church of the cross. And so I invite you to open up your Bibles to our gospel reading this morning, Matthew chapter 16. We'll be looking at verses 21 to 27. Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, may you open up the eyes of our hearts. May you renew our minds this morning. May we see that there is much suffering and trouble in following you. But may we see something else as well. May we see the glorious resurrection that lies ahead. Yes, Lord, strengthen us, fill us with the joy of our salvation. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You see, Peter had just confessed of Jesus. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds with, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It is on the heels of this wonderful event that Christ sharply rebukes Peter. Yes, it's on the heels of this bright and beautiful moment of confession that the conversation suddenly turns dark and foreboding with correction. Peter must not simply confess Christ. He must follow him too. But here in this passage, we find Christ not only rebuking his disciple, but also revealing, reorienting, and foretelling of the ultimate and eternal reward for those who follow him. Like our Lord, we must see beyond the ugliness and see the good news that lies ahead. Like our Lord, we must embrace trouble and self-denial for the glory of God's eternal plan. Like our Lord, we must know the ultimate and eternal value that the Father has for His children. Yes, we must know that when Christ returns, He will reward us for all that we have suffered and endured. We find in this text the indispensable character of the Christian life. It is a mind that is set on the things of God, not the things of man. It's a heart that is fixed on the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ, not anyone or anything else. We must not just confess him, you see. We must follow him. Yes, the Christian life may be faced with trouble 
and self-denial, but it's a life that is more abundant than this world can offer. The Apostle Paul says it like this. He says that we are brought from death to life. This is good news. It is by death that we have life. We should not overlook what Peter and the other disciples overlooked. Christ says that after suffering many things and being killed, he would be raised. They seem to overlook that part. This is the way of the cross. Yes, there will be trouble. Yes, there will be suffering. Yes, we may even die. But like our Lord, we will be raised. This is the indispensable character of the Christian life. From death to life. So what are the lessons to be learned from this passage? What do we learn from Christ? What did he accomplish? What does this mean for his followers? Look with me at verse 21. Notice how Christ showed them what lied ahead. Here Christ's revelation is linked with Peter's confession. From that time, we are told, Jesus began to show his disciples where he must go and what he must do. But it's a frightening and a horrifying truth for them, isn't it? For he must suffer many things from the Jewish leaders. He must be killed. And on the third day, he will be raised. Christ is revealing to them what lies ahead. This is what he does. He's the revealer. He's the one who is showing us the way. Beloved, he is the one for whom we must follow. Our minds must be set on things of God, not things of man. We must not rely upon our deliberations or our discernments or our devotions. We should rely only on Christ. He's the revealer. He's the one that awakens us. So look to him, whether he shows you horror or happiness. Look to him, for he gives you good news. Trust in him. See, Christ saw this good news. He saw that he was to go to Jerusalem to be rejected, to suffer many things, to be killed. But he saw that he was to be raised on the third day. He saw beyond the ugliness of his mission. This is why he acted in faith, not fear. Because he saw the revelation of God. He knew who he was. He knew who God is. He knew who he was and what he was to do. But there's no evidence, particularly on this occasion, that the disciples saw this good news. No, for them, it's horrifying. It's frightening. It's offensive. It certainly was for Peter. Peter took Jesus aside, we are told. Perhaps he did this on his own accord. Perhaps he did this because the disciples asked him to do this. We do not know. But for whatever reason, he took Jesus aside. He rebuked him. Claimed to know the mind of God. He said, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. In other words, he says, God forbid it. 
He had the mind of man, not the mind of God. He was arrogant, not humble. His confidence was in man, not God. He acted in fear, not faith. He saw not the good news of Christ's resurrected glory. He makes no mention of it. All he saw was that the one for whom he cast all his hope was the one who was to suffer many things and to be put to death. You see, God's eternal plan did not match up with Peter's plan. There's nothing more shocking to the human nature than to be confronted with the cross. It causes us to recoil, to be repulsed and offended by it. Disciples, they likely wanted a revolutionary political leader, not a suffering servant. And to make matters worse, Jesus would suffer at the hands of the Jewish leaders. The disciples' very own religious identity would be guilty of rejecting and crucifying and killing their anointed Savior. It's no coincidence that the disciples say nothing of Christ's resurrection hope. No, they are preoccupied with the reality of their shattered dream. That's what they're focused upon. Not following him, but being offended by him. All they heard was that this Messiah had not come to take the kingdom. All they heard that he had not come to reign and to be served. No, he had come to suffer and die. The great question that we must ask is, have we the mind of God or have we the mind of man? Is Christ saying, get behind me, Satan? Is he saying this to you? Are we spiritually ignorant? Do we offer ourselves as living sacrifices in spiritual worship to God by following our suffering servant? You see, we must not simply confess Jesus as the Christ. We must follow him. We must go where he goes. We must suffer as he suffers. We must be raised as he is raised. Now look with me at verses 22 and 23. Notice how Peter sought to prevent the suffering of the cross and how Christ corrects him. You see, in these verses, we see clearly the need of Christ's atoning work and the need to follow Christ in trouble, the need To practice self-denial, the need to suffer humiliation. First, Christ accomplished something that no other person could accomplish. That's important to remember. Here, Peter is listed with the chief priests and the elders and the scribes who persecuted and killed Christ. There is only one who can declare the guilty guiltless. There is only one who can break down the dividing wall of hostility and make peace. It is Christ. It is his atonement. Child of God, without the power of Christ's atonement to redeem, the power of the Holy Spirit does not sanctify. We never experience the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no chance of following Christ. There's no good works in us. And if there's not good works, then there is no reward at Christ's return. Now, I suppose that Peter's pride 
got the best of him. He had just made this great confession. Jesus had just called him the rock and acknowledged that the Heavenly Father revealed this to him. But just as Satan sought to tempt and obstruct and derail Christ from completing his mission, so does Peter here. He acts as Satan acted in the wilderness. And this is why Christ rebukes him. This is why he calls him Satan. This is why he commands him to move over, to get out of the way. This is why he calls him out for not only making a false claim, but having a false way of thinking. He is spiritually ignorant, you see. He says, you have set your mind not on the things of God, but the things of man. And so I ask, is your mind on the things of man? Or is it on the things of God? One way that you can find out. Do you embrace the cross? Are you willing to suffer and be troubled and to die self for Christ's sake? Church, if Peter was not exempt from becoming carnal, then neither are we. Neither are any other disciples exempt. And so let us be vigilant and alert. Let us not be distracted and tangled with the things of this world. Beware that we seek not to prevent our Lord or others or ourselves from that which lies ahead. Let us make up our mind to follow Christ. To grasp the joy of his work and reward. To embrace trouble and self-denial and humiliation. If Christ would not have gone to the cross, then he would not have completed his mission. And if we do not carry our crosses, then we do not complete our mission in following our Lord. We must not set ourselves or others against the eternal plan of God. He has a plan and it's a glorious plan. Yes, it's a plan of suffering. It's a plan of trouble. But it is a plan of resurrection glory. So may Christ's rebuke awaken us to humble ourselves to the spiritual truth that we cannot overlook. We must see our neediness for the atoning work of Christ. And we must see his glory. If we wish to be filled by the power of the Holy Spirit to do good works then we must be freed by the power of Christ's atoning work, you see. Our hope must be that Christ has died for us. He has died for us. That is our hope. Let His work inspire you to love Him. It is an eternal love. And that is all that we can give to God. Nothing else will do. You see, the way of the cross is the way of humiliation. We have nothing to offer that should grant us entry into the kingdom of God. If we wish to inherit the kingdom of heaven, let us be poor in spirit. If we wish to receive God's gift, let us be like the Lord's mother, who is described as a lowly handmaiden. Let us keep our eyes focused on the author and the perfecter of our faith. 
Let us humble ourselves and make up our minds to embrace trouble and suffering and death for the glory of the Lord. Not only does Peter prove that Christ's work and reward is needed, but also that there is much meaning and there is much power for us in following Christ's example. He gives the cross meaning. He gives your trouble. He gives your self-denial. He gives your humiliation meaning, meaning and power. Look at verses 24 and 25. Notice that trouble, self-denial, and humility are necessary for following our Lord. We're joined to Christ in our sufferings. Christ gives meaning and power to us when we follow him into trouble, when we deny ourselves, and when we are humiliated for him. Listen to what Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We must not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Yes, let us offer ourselves as living sacrifices to our Lord, which is pleasing and acceptable to him. Let us make it our spiritual worship, Paul says. Beloved, we are no longer ignorant, but we are new creatures who have meaning and power through our Lord and our Savior. We live a life defined by humility, not haughtiness. A life defined by faith, not fear. We find joy in our suffering, Because it is in our suffering that we are given a greater realization of our heavenly bliss. I'm reminded of a poem that I heard many years ago. Not grace to bar what not is bliss, nor flight from all distress than this. The grace that orders our troubling pain is there in darkness and there to sustain. And lastly... Look with me at Matthew chapter 6, 26, excuse me, and 27. Notice how it is by grasping our eternal and ultimate value in Christ that we are ready for our worthy reward. How are we ready to receive this reward? By grasping the love of the Father for us in Christ. Then and only then are we made to love him mightily. Do not store up your treasures on earth. No, store them up in heaven where rust and moth does not destroy. For what will it profit a man, Jesus says, if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? You see, beloved, the only thing that we can give in return for our souls is the ultimate and eternal love that we have received in Christ. That's all that we can give. We must follow Christ. He must go before us. We must cling to him every bit of the way. Paul says, what then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
He will give us all things. If it is Christ that we live by, if it is Christ that we follow, if it is Christ that goes before us, he will give us all things because Christ is all things. You see how the Father has given the ultimate and the eternal gift. We cannot give him anything from this world. No, that will not do. We must give him what he has given us. He has given us a love that cannot be conquered. This is why the Apostle Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How are we more than conquerors? Through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors because we have received the unconquerable love of Christ. This is the only thing that we can give in return of our souls. It is the unconquerable love of Christ that makes us to embrace trouble. It's the unconquerable love of Christ that makes us to suffer, to take up our crosses, to willingly and gladly be humiliated. It's the unconquerable love of Christ. This is the only thing that we can give in return of our souls. It is the unconquerable power of Christ that makes us to do all of this. Church, let us value the one who ultimately and eternally values us. Let us fix our gaze upon Christ, who is the revelation of the Heavenly Father's love for us. For he will come, we are told, in verse 27. He will come with all his angels in the glory of the Father and will repay each person for what he has done. You see, Christ has given us a place in his kingdom and he will reward us for all our troubles, all our sufferings, and all our humiliation. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.